It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to episode 45 of the Rex Chapman Show with Josh Hopkins. How are you, Josh? I'm doing pretty well, Rex. I see you're back to Brooklyn there. How, how are I am. Uh, things are good. Beautiful day in Brooklyn. Uh, headed outside after we finish this up. Take a little walk. Uh, I get a little like walk that. in mm-hmm. like an old man. Like right. an old man. Uh, how you doing, bud? Austin? Good. Good in Austin. It's a beautiful day here. I've got to get out. And, and get a little vitamin D after after this. This is uh, it's beautiful here. But um, you read anything this week? Uh, oh book yeah, club. we should do do uh, book club. It's funny, and I don't want to end the gag of sorts. But this week, I did actually not read anything again. But I th- I I didn't. I didn't. I no. That. Did you? Well, interesting. I had a lot of time this week. Yeah. And I. I ended up binging shows on a streaming shows. Right. So I didn't read anything either. That's been book club. Uh, what do you think? Episode uh, 45. Episode ooh, 45. How, how, what about the famous 45s? 45 comes to mind. Uh, John Pannone <laughs> played at Villanova back in the 80s. And he had just an ugly game, but effective game. And the only reason I say that is because Keith Vanderpool, who played on my high school team, wore 45 and we called him John Pannone forever. So uh, 45 wow. okay. other 45s, right. you know, of Josh. Well, it's uh, ironic that the most famous 45 was not really a 45 Michael Jordan. Yeah. Know, he comes yeah. up. That's, that's ironic. Uh, 45. Yeah. AC green. Pedro Martinez. Wow. Yeah. At first, AC green. Kentucky. Kentucky guys, uh, it, it's football, but um, uh, Derek Ramsey. Derek Ramsey, the best football player we've ever had over. I ran into Derek Ramsey about two years ago in the airport in Atlanta. And Derek Ramsey is about six, six. Still looks like he could play. I mean, just an incredibly big athlete. Um, What else is up, buddy? Got uh, playoffs going on still. It's kind of been disappointed. I've been disappointed in the. just the health of the playoffs. Yeah. Like Miami yeah. being banged up now and Boston being so banged up. Yeah, Looks like Golden State's going to do their thing. Uh, anyway. Yeah. But as uh, we've seen, it can turn on a dime anytime Clay goes down, boom. You know, anything. Yep. You, you play it, but it does look like uh, we're reaching. Uh, it does look like it's Golden State's to lose at this point. Sure does. Um, you want to get to our guest, Josh? We should. It's just, it's amazing. This is amazing. I'm, uh, you got to give it to our guy, JT, and, and the guys behind the scenes who have rustled up a few guests for us here recently that have been A. But this one, this one, I think we're really going to like. Today on the show, I'm pleased to say we have 29 time Emmy winner baseball play-by-play for MLB Network and TBS Guy, former NBA on NBC studio host and play-by-play voice, and the host of the Summer Olympics, we have 
Robert Quinlan Costas. Bob Costas, welcome, buddy. Yes. Hello, Rex. Hello, everyone. How are you? Man, I, I'm so fired up to have you. I've got to start with this. I've I've known of you um, from the from I don't know four or five years old. Every time you've been on anything, especially when I was a kid growing up, um, every time my father would say, Bob Costas, old ABA guy. And so, and, you know, I was four or five years old at the time. You would have been a young, a yeah. young journalist coming right out of college. But for my, for my whole life, and when, uh, you know, you agreed to come on the pod, I think old ABA guy. Yeah. I, I was the voice of the Spirits of St. Louis for their two seasons, which were the last two seasons of the existence of the ABA, 74, 75, and 75, 76. And I know your dad, Wayne, played in the league before I was in the league, but I, I never saw him play firsthand. But you know, as well as I do, the ABA, if you played in the ABA or had anything to do with it, it's a lifelong fraternity. Even guys like Rick Barry, who the bulk of his career is in the NBA and the bulk of his fame is in the NBA, but or Dr. J, you know, you put them yeah. in an ABA surrounding. And in a sense, that's their real kinship. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you said that because, you know, for for Josh and I, who are I'm 54 now, I think Josh is 50. Um, you know, you are the voice for so many of us us young, younger guys, but you're also the voice for those ABA guys. And when you say it, you know, my father will go to the ABA reunion in Indianapolis every year or so. And it's, they, my mom and dad just absolutely love it. It is a big fraternity. Yeah, it, it really is. And you know, what you touched on earlier, Josh is 50, you're 54. And just the other night I was with a bunch of broadcasting people and, and I was saying to Andrea Kramer of, of HBO, I'm hearing from people, and this is exactly what I said. I'm hearing from people who say to me, I've been listening to you my entire life. And then the guy is effing 50. <laughs> <laughs> do, do the math. Do the math. <laughs> I've, gone, I've gone from being the irreverent newcomer to the, the, the venerable presence or whatever you want to attach. I get venerable is the nice way to put it. Old guy on his way out is maybe the more accurate way to put it. I don't know. No, I well, I was wondering, and I'm I'm gonna let Josh get in something here in a second, but I'm just so fired up to have you. You know, I was called from the time I can remember, you know, the Wonder Boy, Boy Wonder. And mm -hmm. I know you were you were saddled with some of those names. How how do you think about it now? And how did you think about it at the time? At the time I was totally good with it because I was very young. Uh when I wound up at KMOX, 50,000 watt station, big deal station, especially for sports booming out all over the country at, on a given night, could be heard in as many as 40 states. Jack Buck was the sports director, Joe's dad, Hall of Fame baseball and football broadcaster. Um, they, they just had so much talent there. So I was 22 when I was there. I was 24 when I lucked into my first network broadcast. I was 27 when NBC hired me full time. And at 27, I looked like I was 14. So I had no problem whatsoever with, with people referring to me as the kid or whatever, the newcomer, fresh-faced, and whatever it might be. And the way I look at it now, it's so trite. But things become trite or they become cliches because they're essentially true. And that is time goes by so much faster. 
And as you get older, the same span of time seems to go by more quickly. The span between 30 and 50 seems like it was a longer stretch of territory than between 50 and 70. And the one game you don't want to play, and it never hit me until 70 was looming. The one game you don't want to play is the equidistant game. It doesn't seem that long ago when I was Josh's age, when I was 50. Well, I'm equidistant between that and 90. So whatever it is I want to get done, I better get it done in a hurry. (laughs) Yeah, we all feel that. We all, yeah, yeah, I don't like that game either at all. Bob, how did you get from, how good were you? And how did you get from, you know, you ride out of Syracuse, great Mm -hmm. school, great uh, school for journalism. Mm -hmm. Um, How did the, how did you get to St. Louis and what was that? What, what opportunity? I mean, you must've been really good for word to travel that fast pre-internet. Right. I I was, I was pretty good, maybe precociously better than some people my age, but everybody needs a break. My college roommate for one year when I was a sophomore at Syracuse, was a guy named Roger Holstein, little aside, he later went on to found WebMD. He's a very smart guy. And he sold it some years ago for a tidy sum that now allows him to live however he wishes to live. Uh, And we are still very close friends. Uh, Roger Roger was a basketball nut. He played high school basketball in Ohio. Uh, He transferred from Syracuse after our sophomore year, but we remained in touch. Turns out he was a cousin of a guy named Harry Weltman who subsequently was the GM of the Cleveland Cavaliers and the then, I guess, New York, maybe they were New Jersey, Nets. But at that time, he became the president of the Spirits of St. Louis running the team after they moved from Carolina. The Carolina Cougars became the Spirits of St. Louis. So Roger calls me up, landline, old days, calls me up and says, look, they're looking for an announcer. I say, Roger, I'm 22 years old. This is KMOX. They're not going to hire me. He goes, look, just send the tape. I'll make sure that it's heard. And the only basketball tape I had, this was back before you could just, you know, yeah. have a link and send it. It was a big project. The woolen sack tape recorder. <laughs> you got to spread the reel to reel through it. The big weight 100 pounds. So I listened to this tape of this game that I'd done on the, on the campus station at Syracuse between Syracuse and Rutgers. And it's pretty good. But I edited out all the choppy parts. And if there was a reference to the score that might have seemed like it was edited, I edited out the reference to the score. So it seemed like one continuous 10-minute chunk. Probably 75% of it was continuous. The other 25%, I kind of fudged a little bit. And then I handed it to an engineer friend of mine, and I said, would you re-record this with the treble slightly down and the bass slightly up? So I don't sound like I'm 19, which is how I did it. Maybe I'll sound a little more authoritative. And I send it off. And then what Roger did, you know, it's KMOX. They had a couple hundred applicants and all these tapes and resumes are sitting in a giant box. Some of them went to the team and some of them went to KMOX. And Roger took my tape, put it on the recorder, put it on Harry Waltman's desk. And when Harry came back from lunch, he said, listen to this and push the button. So what he assured was that I wouldn't be lost at the bottom of the box. And Harry said, According to Roger, hey, that's pretty good. Let's send it over to KMOX. They sent it over to KMOX and Jack Buck listened to, you know, the tapes that they winnowed down to like a dozen or so. 
And I guess he had a top three and they brought the three in. And I think the real clincher for me was I said, I don't they, what would you expect to be paid, said Mr. Robert Highland, the uh, general manager of KMOX. And I said, whatever that figure is, I'd pay you that if I had it. So you fill in the blank. And they paid me 11 grand to call the first season. Wow. And if I had 11 grand, I would have paid that. Um, and so that, that, may have, that may have helped, that I was willing to work very cheap. Well, that's, that's the kind of passion yeah. that gets people ahead in any business. Yeah. You're passionate. Sure. You know, you outwork the others. And that's, that's a good lesson for any youngsters out there listening. Uh, Bob, I have to ask you, because in reading about you, you know, in 2012, halftime of a Sunday night football game, Mm-hmm. Uh, you you spoke about uh, Jovan Belcher had just uh, yeah. had a murder suicide, mm-hmm. and you spoke about gun culture on air, yeah, in our country, and you received a lot of flack for it from yep. from a lot a lot of people, and and you stood by it, but you also you know clarified you know how what yeah. a touchy issue it is, and here we are a decade later, and as you reflect mm-hmm. on that. What are your thoughts now? Well, you know, it keeps happening. It keeps happening. Sandy Hook happened only weeks later. Uh, And when I was subsequently interviewed about it, I said, sadly, we're going to see this happen again and again. And tragically, that turns out to be true. Uh, What I said was misinterpreted. But as I've said before, that's on me. Usually I'm a pretty competent broadcaster and I'll get my point across with a fair amount of precision. In this case, we were rushed. I didn't know that they were going to ask me to comment about this until late in the second quarter of the game. And even then, we didn't know how much time we'd have because it was an unusual halftime without highlights. They devoted all of it to looking at the Belcher incident. They had lots of sound from Brady Quinn, who then was the Chiefs quarterback, and others. They did a very poignant segment from the studio in New York. And then I wound up having just a short amount of time. And I came into it with the idea that if I'm going to address this at all, I'm going to address a sports cliche. And there are many sports cliches that we all find annoying if we have half a brain. One of the worst is anytime something significant, especially if it's tragic, outside the realm of sports happens, then almost every broadcaster looks solemnly into the camera and says, this really puts it all in perspective, which is a crock. Because if it did, we'd have some perspective that lasts more than about 12 seconds. Mm. So that that was my premise. And what I was going to then say is, if we really want to gain some perspective on this, thoughts and prayers won't do. Some hand-wringing and solemn music won't do. We need to have an ongoing conversation, a serious conversation about a number of issues, including, although not limited to, domestic violence. And are those who play a belligerent and violent game more inclined to it than their athletic peers? The effects of football itself, uh, concussions, damage to the prefrontal cortex, which has uh, an effect on impulse control and emotional restraint, uh, especially if mixed with performance-dancing drugs or alcohol, who knows what else. And then also our entire relationship, especially within the sports world, to guns, not talking here about anyone's responsible, lawful exercise of the legitimate Second Amendment rights, but there is a gun culture in sports. Just Google athletes and guns and look at the long list of criminality, folly, tragedy, 
associated with athletes and guns. And if you want to be fair and you want to counter it, take a look at how short the list is of any occasions where a prominent athlete, by virtue of having a gun, turned a bad situation around for the better. I'm not saying it never happens, but the number of times it happens is scant alongside the very long list on the other side. That was my idea. But now I had like, I don't know, half as much time as you usually have for the halftime thing. And a producer handed me, printed out from the internet, a column that Jason Whitlock, who ironically is now a hero of right-wingers, right. but Jason Whitlock, who had played football himself, had covered uh, football, was a Kansas City-based uh, sports writer. He had written a long uh, response to what had happened. And one passage was about the gun culture in the country and in sports, which ended with, if Javon Belcher did not possess a gun, I, Jason Whitlock, believe that he and Sandra Perkins would be alive today. All right. I thought foolishly, now the producer hands this to me, but it's on me. I'm the goalie. I'm the guy who has the final say. So I had to look at it. We were rushed, much more rushed than we usually yeah. are. But, but the essence of live television, and I think I've been pretty good at this over a long period of time, sometimes stuff just happens. It's incoming. What is this? Something happens at the Olympics. Somebody you've never heard of does something fantastic. Who is he or she? Quickly tell me. Okay, what is this? Okay, I got it. And you try to synthesize it and you make something out of it that makes sense. In this case, I thought that that one passage, which the producer called to my attention, was self-evidently true. It seemed to me that it was self-evident that right. you're not talking about the Second Amendment. You're talking about if if people are influenced by a culture coming culture. from different directions, including music, movies, uh, right wing talk, right, whatever it might be that that makes us a little more trigger happy or makes the gun a first resort, that then nothing good comes of that attitude, which has nothing to do with a single mom having a gun and somebody breaking into our house. Right. Nothing to do with any of that. All right. I thought that was self-evidently true. That was foolish on my part because I soon found out that there are people who are triggered, no pun intended, um, by any reference that they go from A to Z, yeah. from zero to 100. And that even mentioning this means that you what you really want to do is confiscate everybody's guns. And then right. we'll all be at the mercy of either criminals or a tyrannical government. OK, so that was my mistake. I didn't have time to make the full point. I haven't arrived at the full point I just made subsequently. That's what I thought if you and I were sitting down to talk about it. That's what I thought on that night in December of 2012. That's what I thought for a very long time. But I didn't do as comprehensive a job as I should have and could have if I'd had more time to a, think about it beforehand and then more time in the segment. So subsequently, I've clarified it as I did just here. But when in this kind of polarized media world, when people have a straw man, they're not going to let the straw man go. It's not good enough to say, well, Bob Costas has seemed to be a reasonable guy throughout his life. And he just clarified what he said. OK, point taken. Fair enough. No, no, no. Yeah, no. Uh, and no interest, no interest in in finding out whether their impressions were true. Uh, I remember someone on Fox News started out saying about me, a person he'd never met or spoken to, that I was a hypocritical buffoon because I don't want you to have a gun to protect yourself, but I'm a person of privilege. So I'm surrounded by armed security at all times. Where are they? Where are they? Yeah. You know, and so I then went on, this may be a longer answer than Josh had 
bargain for, but that's what no, I love it. This is amazing. I, I then I've always felt this way and maybe it's a foolish conceit because in this world, um, if someone wants to believe two plus two is five, you can have a choir of angels testify that two plus two is four and they'll still reject it. But I've always felt that it isn't good enough just to go into friendly precincts that you should go in effect into the belly of the beast or the belly of the opposition. Uh, so I went on with Bill O'Reilly. However one feels about Bill O'Reilly, he's always been fair to me. Uh, and he and I have had a, a decent relationship. And so I went on with Bill O'Reilly and also with Howard Kurtz, who does their media program on Fox, he used to do it on CNN. And in the interest of being completely transparent, there was, I was mentioning how off this he has private security thing is. I said, well, look, there's always massive security at an Olympics. You've ever been to an Olympics? The president of the United States has to go through the same multi-layered security that you or I or any fan with a ticket would have to have to go through. There's always security in the Olympics. And there's one security guy who runs the security operation on NBC Sunday Night Football. That then became on Fox News. Oh, all he's saying is, I don't have personal security because I don't have to pay for it. Now, if, if you're in this kind of house of mirrors, how in the world can you ever testify truthfully and have it mean anything? When we're done here, Rex, and maybe, maybe this is an advertisement to some wacko who doesn't like me, when we're done here, if I walk out into the, on the sidewalk in New York to go you know, have lunch or something, I'm walking down the street like anybody else. Yeah. If I did a baseball game last week, I did three baseball games last week at Fenway Park. I walk or, or get a ride from the hotel to the ballpark. I'm looking around. No armed security. Hi, how you doing? Good to see you. You know, yeah. that's just the truth. That doesn't make me a man of the people any more than the next guy. But it certainly doesn't mean that I'm in a cone of security. So yeah. my, my point is that we're now 10 years out from that. Uh, what I really said, what I intended to say what I actually believe, what the actual circumstances of my own life are, have been clearly identified by any fair-minded person. That doesn't mean they can't agree or disagree with me on any given issue. But if someone is intent on just portraying me as a caricature or as a straw man, just as they are with a zillion other people, no amount of logic or evidence will persuade them. So as far as I'm concerned, now case closed. I just right. can't, you know... I Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. I just can't. Uh, I, I want to put a, a, an exclamation mark on, you know, it <clears> took <throat> you, Bob Costas, you know, seven, eight minutes to really tell that the way that it needed to be told. Yeah. And when you're on live, you might have had what? A minute? A I, minute I, I, and I, a half? I, I don't I know. I had, I had about 90 seconds and okay. I squandered some of it with the perspective thing, but because right. I was already in yep. my head um and your and, mind's been racing for a couple yeah, of right. maybe an hour or so thinking about how you're going to do that while you're covering a game yeah although you know once i ended the pregame show then it was al michaels and chris collinsworth calling the game the real issue there was that i didn't know until late in the second quarter a what whether they wanted me to address it and b how much time i would have to address it but there have been other circumstances where I and other broadcasters yeah. have faced that and it's a bad hop, but you handle it. That's your job. You know, on this particular occasion, I didn't do as good a job as I would like to think I usually do. And without using a, a grandiose 
you know, example or comparison, guys win gold gloves. And in the season in which they win gold gloves, they make two or three errors. Ozzie Smith booted a few. I'm not saying I'm as good at what I do as Ozzie Smith was at what he did. But, you know, my point, sometimes it isn't like, oh, this is the personification of who he is and what he believes. Sometimes you just didn't do quite as well as you usually do. That's what happened on that occasion. Well, I mean, it is self-evident that that, you know, to say, I'm sorry that these crazies, they still do it. It's happening now. It's tenfold since then. Yes. You know, Twitter, it's a... And for you to say logical things on air, you know, it's important to people like me who are mm-hmm. watching, who've grown up with you as a sensible voice, a voice of comfort, a voice of reason. You've been that guy every sport. You make us feel comfortable. You've been like this Walter Cronkite, uh, Mr. Rogers and, and Michael J. Fox all together yeah. in this way, this beloved way. And for you to say sensible things is important. And I'm sorry you were attacked, but thank you for that. Yes. Thanks, Josh. I, I think I was trying to say a sensible thing uh, to be repetitive. I could have done a better job saying it. But of the three examples you gave, Cronkite, I have no mustache. Uh, Mr. Rogers, sometimes I wear a sweater, but not every day. <laughs> But it leads me into something a bit more lighthearted, and it has a Kentucky connection. Uh, what is it now? It's, on, it's six years ago now. Muhammad Ali's memorial service in 2016 at the arena where the Louisville Cardinals play basketball. Um, and it was a, a, a huge turnout. And the ceremony, because of the processional through the city, uh, started late. And so there were a lot of bold-faced names there. And people were gathered on the arena floor. Um, Some people were up in the actual seats. And then there were chairs on the floor of the arena and assigned seats. But because it was like an hour and a half, two hours before the ceremony actually started, there were clusters of people just kind of standing and talking, waiting for things to kind of come to order. So I'm in one of those clusters. When in walks Don King. Now... (laughs) Get Don King in your mind, yeah. on. You know, the hair is standing straight up. He's waving that American flag. He's wearing that jean jacket with the American flag on it. And as he approaches, as luck would have it, the group that I'm standing in, he feels for some reason as if he should provide a brief scouting report on each person. So as he walks up, he's like, Mike Tyson, once the most feared man in the ring, Coach Pat Riley, straight off the pages of GQ. Sugar Ray Leonard, not a mark on him, as beautiful as a child. Katie Couric, America's sweetheart. And then he turns to me and he goes, Michael J. Fox. (laughs) (laughs) And and Katie's like, Don, 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 it's Bob Costas. And he's so shameless. He goes, Bob Costas, greatest commentator in the world. So the Michael J. Fox part, Josh, resonates more than you. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. That's so funny. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> Speaking of that, real quick, because Muhammad Ali, he's everybody's, you know, especially now in hindsight. You got to yep. see when when he wasn't uh, every we didn't have hindsight. Was he one of the, mo- the most enigmatic personalities in sports you've ever been around most charismatic even but be, and i'm looking before we hold him we're, in this regard we're both now. Kentucky it was part guys. of his Josh, 
Right. Josh and I are both Kentucky guys. Uh, I loved Cassius Clay just because he was a breath of fresh air. Uh, you didn't have to know the whole history of boxing. Even when I was a kid, I, I had a pretty good sense of sports history. But there was just something different about him. It was as if Sugar Ray Robinson was a heavyweight, you know. Um, so him against Liston, maybe old timers rooted for Sonny Liston. For a kid who was 11, 12 years old, it was easy to say, no, this guy Cassius Clay, he's my guy. This is before he became a political figure. But when he's a polarizing political figure, banned unjustly from the ring for more than three years, subject potentially to jail time, not knowing if he'd ever be able to step through the ropes again. I'm a kid at a Northeastern university. I'm at Syracuse in the early 70s. You know, it's kind of a common way of framing this that, quote, white America couldn't stand Muhammad Ali. Well, sadly, a large portion could not. But a very large portion not only was okay with him, we loved him. We, we got it that you didn't have to be black to understand the civil rights movement. If you were a college student, you're reading Malcolm X, you're, you're reading James Baldwin, you're reading Richard Wright. You're, you're familiar not just with the civil rights aspect, but with as much of, a, of the black experience that someone who's open to it can experience and you're receptive to it. So I love Muhammad Ali on every level. I loved him in the ring. I loved him outside the ring. Um, and to get my sense of it, not to promote something, but uh, it's three minutes long. If, if you Google Bob Costas on Muhammad Ali's death or whatever it is, there's the three minute thing I did. He died on a Friday night and on Saturday, uh, the NHL finals were going on on NBC and they aired it between periods of an NHL finals game. And that kind of summarizes my sense of Muhammad Ali's uh, career and, and life as best I can. But to the point that, that I just made, and I think it's an important one, and it's not designed to mitigate injustices past or present or to minimalize in any way the, the hurdles that are still faced. But I was very fortunate to become uh, pretty good friends with Hank Aaron to the point where his wife, Billy, asked me to be among the eulogists at his, at his funeral. Um, and at one point in conversation with Hank, I said, look, I know that you've saved as a reminder boxes of those thousands and thousands of hateful letters you received from racists threatening your children and, and all the vilification. And Hank wasn't just a great player. He was one of the most decent human beings you could ever meet, a kind and humble man. I said, I'm not trying to minimize any of that, but I just hope you know how many, not just black Americans, but white Americans admired you, not just in retrospect when we came to our senses, but in the moment when you hit 715, I was in a group of about 10 people at a television station, WSYR in Syracuse. It was just before I went to St. Louis. There were about 10 people in the room. Two were black, one reporter and one cameraman, which was kind of unusual at that oh, point to have yeah. kind of 20% representation, at least in, in that group. Every, everyone in that room, everything stopped because the game was on NBC. Kurt Gowdy was doing the game on a Monday night on NBC. And everyone spontaneously stood up and cheered. Did that mean that we forgot Babe Ruth? This is what these idiots and racists thought. Oh, isn't Babe Ruth still just as big a legend as he ever was? You know, and isn't Hank Aaron's 755 more resonant 
than Barry Bonds' 762 for reasons we need not belabor. I, I just hope that Hank would understand not to have him, not yeah. to reduce his hurt or his purpose after receiving all that hate, but to know that he had more support and more respect and admiration from white America, or at least a good portion of it, than he might have realized. And I, I think that, that Hank, certainly by the, by the time he died, he certainly realized that. Man, that, that is just, that's amazing. I'm, I'm, thanks for sharing it. Uh, but it, it, it raises a good point. Josh and I are both from Kentucky. I grew up in Western mm -hmm. Kentucky. He grew up in Central Kentucky. And I remember being confused. I don't, like, as a kid, I don't remember Cassius Clay. I only remember Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. And I remember growing up where we did, being so confused that many, many people didn't like him. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand why. And the reason was always, well, he wouldn't go to the army. And right. I, I didn't understand. I had no perspective on any other way of thinking. Yeah. And so it was, I'm just glad that you, you know, because for Muhammad, uh, who I later met, who Josh later met, uh, you know, was that, was that one of my ball games when it was that we played in Louisville and I uh -huh. grew up always loving that guy. And I hope, you know, somebody was able to give well, him that message much it, like you were able to give Hank, because it, it sure is the truth. As, as I said, in this little three minute piece that I'm not trying to promote it. It's six years ago. <laughs> I have no interest oh, in it. except oh, I'm on. watching what, what my feeling was about it. Uh, in 1996 in Atlanta, Dick Ebersol, who ran NBC Sports, had the idea that Muhammad should be the last torchbearer, the person to light the cauldron. And some of the Olympic officials and the organizers from the Atlanta Organizing Committee said, Dick, he may be a hero to you, but down here, he's still a draft dodger. And Dick said, no, no, the country is largely past that. You'll see. And Dick was so right. And the way they staged it, here's another good story. The way they staged it, they rehearsed it one time at like three o'clock in the morning. And I didn't know this until I had a conversation very recently with Janet Evans, the great swimmer, who yeah. was the second to last torchbearer. She ran up the ramp holding it. And the way they staged it, Muhammad stepped out of the, literally out of the shadows. No one knew it was him until the moment he grasped the torch. And I didn't know this, but when they rehearsed it, Muhammad's hand was trembling so much that he actually dropped it in the rehearsal. Um, only about a dozen people knew that it was going to be him. And Dick Ebersol normally would tell us who the last torchbearer would be so that we could think about our remarks. And he told me and Dick Enberg, who was the co-host, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but you'll recognize him or her immediately. And so I began running it through my head. Could it be Hank Aaron, big Atlanta hero, but not and not connected to the Olympics. Evander Holyfield's from Atlanta. He was in the Olympics. Could it be him? And I'm running through all of these possibilities. And I, I must admit, Muhammad Ali occurred to me. But when I thought of it, I said, no, he's not up to it. He can't do it. Because even 20 years before his death, the, the effects of the Parkinson's was there. And when he stepped out of the shadows, that is such a resonant moment. Even now, I've told this story many times. I get choked up thinking about it. I get goosebumps thinking about it. You hear a lot of sounds in a stadium or arena. You hardly ever hear an audible gasp. It took two or three seconds before the shock wore off and then the 
crescendo of applause and cheering, the sustained cheering. You very, very rarely in life, but of course he was such an epic figure that things happened to him and around him that the rest of us will never experience. Where you get a moment of reconciliation, that resounding, that seen by the entire world, that really tied a ribbon around it. And he actually said to Dick Ebersole after that, I feel like I was born again. He didn't mean that in an evangelical sense. I feel like I was born again. And by the time those Olympics ended, two, three weeks later, on the last day, NBC's people had put together a great tribute called Twice Born about Muhammad's um, experience at that, at that Olympics. Um, so now I've forgotten what the original question was, but, <laughs> but <laughs> it that's, might not, it might not have story. been, it might I, not have been a question. I gotta say just, and I don't embarrass you, but to sit here and like you say, I'm not saying I'm as good as Ozzy was at his, <laughs> it's, I'm sitting here listening to you communicate yeah. and go, it's, it's like watching that to me. It's like watching a great athlete and the way you're able to communicate and tell stories. It's it's got to be innate. And so, of course, you've built this with reps and reps, but you that's a skill. That's a gift. And it's fun to sit here and oh, actually you. listen to you tell stories. It, it, it's unbelievable. It's it just like wearing, putting on your favorite slippers, your favorite, favorite winter <laughs> coat. It just feels like home. Thank you. Doing a podcast, of course, is more open-ended. So it gives you a chance to do little parenthetical things. Um, whereas most of the time on network television, especially, you're trying to fit into little slots. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Well, you you um, have the job, a miracle top job every sports fan would ever want, front row to all these mm-hmm. unbelievable events. And you've been there and you've been covering it. And you've been you've been us for so long. And I with everything you've seen, just like it could be the story you just told. Are there a couple things and there there's a thousand, I'm sure, but that stand out where you're like, I I can't believe. I'm here for this because you've seen so much. Are, are there a few just stand out? Yeah. And, you know, I think we're always most affected by the things that first meant something to us when we were young. Mm. You know, you, you can say, hey, this person's a great artist, a great musician who I first heard when I'm 50 years old. But it's not the same thing as the music you listened to when you were 15 or 20, provided that music is of any kind of quality. So when I did the late night show, um, which was not a sports show in the late 80s to the mid 90s, after David Letterman on NBC, 
we had a really eclectic group of guests, and many of them were significant figures in entertainment, in broadcasting, in politics, whatever it might be. But one guest was Paul McCartney, and oh, I wow. and, and the the interview and, and the, all this stuff is not going. YouTube YouTube's like a, a weird gift where people people <laughs> say to me, "Hey, I saw you the other day with Paul McCartney." I'm like, "Wait, a minute, I interviewed Paul McCartney 30 years ago." No, I saw it on YouTube. <laughs> so um, anyway, a lot of people still think that that's one of the best McCartney interviews. 90 percent of which the credit goes to him. Um, because he was such an, an open and accessible guy and, and responded in such a gracious way. But as I'm sitting there, you know, to Josh's question, I'm thinking of myself being 11 years old in my parents' living room, watching the Beatles make their American debut on a black and white TV on the Ed Sullivan show. And now I'm thinking, I wonder if anybody I went to high school with is saying, wow, there's Bobby Costas talking to Paul McCartney. So have I been lucky enough to interview Bruce Springsteen and, you know, whoever you, yes. And do I admire him greatly? Yes. But it's not the same because by the time Bruce Springsteen was on my radar, I was an adult, but I was a kid when, you know, okay. So becoming um, so improbably friends with Mickey Mantle and then having Mickey say 60 minutes wants me to go on. This is after he came out of the Betty Ford clinic. Uh, but I'd rather do it with you, which doesn't mean that, again, that doesn't mean that I'm at the level of 60 minutes. It just means wow. that I had a relationship with him and he trusted me. And then to do the interview with him on a primetime news magazine on NBC, back when news magazines were different than what they generally are now, and to have that mean so much to him and then sadly, a year later, he dies and his family asked me to do the eulogy wow. um, at, at his funeral in Dallas. Those two things stand out. The Ali moment stands out. Michael Jordan's last shot as a Chicago Bull that turned the one point deficit into the one point win that clinched the sixth title of the dynasty in Utah. That stands out. And Kirk Gibson's home run. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seckersley in the bottom of the ninth, the pinch hit home run in game one of the 88 World Series. I did not call it. Two of the greatest calls in baseball history on the same play. Jack Buck on the radio and Vin Scully on television. Two of the greatest to ever do it. I was the pregame and postgame host, um, but I was in the corner of the Dodger dugout as the game played out in the ninth inning. And that was one of the most theatrical. It looked like a movie. And I said to the pregame producer when it was all over with, you know how people usually leave early? At, yeah. so that's the knock on L.A. fans. They arrive late and they leave early. Nobody left or almost nobody left. Half an hour after the game, people are still in the stands. It was a Saturday night. They're still in the stands. They didn't want to relinquish the moment. And I said to David Neal, uh, the great pregame producer, I said, you know what? This reminded me of Robert Redford's last at bat as Roy Hobbs in The Natural. Now, that was my sole contribution to put that notion in his head. But he then went to work and he intercut Redford's at bat with Gibson's at bat. And it was eerie how parallel they were. They were. Gibson wasn't bleeding from his uniform, but he was limping around. He was definitely wounded. And even Wilford Brimley, as the manager of the Wilford uh, of the uh, uh, New York Knights, he jumps up like this. So did Lasorda. And they each wow. got about this far off the ground, just maybe enough to slip a lineup card beneath their, speaks, <laughs> their spikes of the dirt. Um, so he, he did this brilliant thing 
And this is the way we came on the air with Randy Newman's soundtrack from oh the Natural uh, and intercutting Gibson with, uh, with Redford. And all I said was, I brought it on the air. For, all I said was, echoes of a miracle. And then the whole thing, nothing else. Wow. Boom, boom, boom for two and a half, three minutes, whatever it was. And then as he hit home plate in slow motion, up came the logo, game two next. And <sighs> this is what, 34 years ago? If my, no, no. That's right. Yeah, 34 yeah. years ago. I still occasionally hear about it. You know, you get in a cab or something, the cab driver, uh, you know, I, I'll never forget that piece or someone will bring it up. But the most telling thing, and again, I had about 2% to do with it. I was just on the premises. But you asked me what I'll remember. I was just lucky enough, Josh's question, you had a front row seat. I was lucky enough to be in the Dodger dugout when that wow. unfolded. Talk about a front row seat. And another thing, because it's a podcast, right? Lasorda, who was always just doing anything to kind of charge up his, his forces and whatnot. He was such a colorful character. And he sees they're losing, right? And Eckersley's on the mound, and it's, it's locked down. He's the best reliever in the game then. Uh, and I'm in the corner of the dugout. And, and Lasorda's like, see that? To like his guys, like to Sachs and, and Hershey's. See that? Effing Costas. Even effing NBC doesn't think we have an effing chance. Right. He wasn't mad at me. It's just a thing. It's a Lasorda thing. You know? <laughs> so anyway, um, Kurt, God, Gibson, Kurt Gibson to this day says that a good part of how he remembers it isn't just how he remembers it from mm -hmm. doing it and being in the box and looking at Eckersley. He remembers it in large part because of how Vin Scully called it, how Harry Coyle directed it in real time. So great in real time that if you could change a frame, you wouldn't. Like if it was a movie, you might do 10 takes. One take, he got it exactly right. So did Scully get it exactly right. And then the piece the next day that brought us on the air, that's how he remembers it, which wow. shows, even though it's not like splitting the atom, it's not going to change the course of Western civilization. If we do what we do as well as we can do it, it positively affects how people remember it. You know, the miracle on ice in 1980 at Lake Placid would be a great event, even if the most pedestrian, minimally competent announcer had called it. But because of the way Al Michaels called it, because of the punctuation, do you believe in miracles? That's why it echoes some 40 plus years later. Uh, so, you know, sometimes we can enhance what's been handed to us. Oh, yeah, you can. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this, this is Rex's podcast, and I feel like I'm hijacking. I'm sorry, but I... No, I'm oh, the one who's hijacked it. <laughs> no, no. You're supposed to. Great, Josh is too. It's a great segue because you talk about theatrical and the theatrics of it and and that moment. You know, if it only he had hit the lights and they exploded. Yeah. It, you know, the beauty of yeah. all that. Uh, I don't know if you've even heard yet, but earlier today I heard that uh, Ray Liotta, our actor... I just had, heard I came on with you guys. So as an actor myself, I mean, he's been an inspiration. What a great artist and so many films that affected us in similar ways. You know, it's mm -hmm. all it, it affects you in ways you take those stories. And it's an important thing. Uh, Field of Dreams. That's uh, one of his seminal movies. It brings us to two baseball movies. And I'd like to know what what your favorite are. Yeah, you know, I have a, a few favorites, but when asked to pick one, I choose Bull Durham because I think it has the best balance 
between the romance of baseball and it's not a sappy romance. It's mm -hmm. kind of an implied romance and love of the game, along with the quirkiness and the humor of it. And the fact that it's set in the minor leagues, right. you want to talk about a real love of the game. It isn't the glory. It isn't the money. It's the game and the atmospherics of the game. And it's no accident that Ron Shelton, who wrote it and directed it, played in the Orioles farm system. He got as high as triple A. Uh, I think he may have played for Joe Altabelli, who succeeded Earl Weaver as the manager of the Orioles in the 1980s. But in any case, um, Ron had a real feel for what the minor leagues are like. Um, and the movie has, without being pretentious, it has a little bit of a literate touch with Annie Savoy quoting the classics and what yeah. she's pretentious, but the movie's not pretentious. Right. She's a perfect character, Susan Sarandon's character. And it always helps that if it's a baseball movie, can the guy play baseball? Well, Kevin Costner could sure as hell play baseball. Mm -hmm. you know? um, and of course, he's in Field of Dreams as well. And like everybody, I, I get it. I get dad want to have a catch. Um, I went back to uh, Dyersville, Iowa in 2014, wow. um, which was then the 25th anniversary, I think, of, of the film. And Dwyer Brown, who plays his dad, uh, was there. And so was Timothy Busfield, who plays his brother-in-law, wow. trying to talk him down from his crazy ideas. Um, and Costner, of course, plays Ray Kinsella. And Kevin was there, too. Just like Kevin came back for that Field of Dreams game last summer. I don't know if you guys saw it, but when the Yankees played the yeah. White Sox Field of Dreams game, Costner was there for like the whole day before and day of, just reveling in it. And his presence really united baseball present. Wow baseball with the film and he, he Kevin is very um articulate about the films that he's been in and what he remembers about them and it's one of his favorite films because of the way it resonates with people and the way it reached them um you know for some people it's a bit too sappy a bit too baseball as metaphor for everything um so therefore it's not my favorite but I, I recognize why people connect to it and if you understand anything about baseball, if if there's not a catch in your throat when Costner says to Dwyer Brown, hey, dad, I want to have a catch, then you came to the wrong movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Have you uh, you've appeared as as yourself in in a few movies. Uh, what was the experience like calling Trey Parker and Matt Stone, along with your good pal Al Michaels in basketball, which is one of my well, favorites. There's there's, <laughs> there's a story there. Uh yeah, the South Park guys, Stone and Parker, are at the center of the film. But the Zucker brothers are the producers of the film, and they did Airplane and the Naked Gun series. Now, those things are, on their own terms, they're just fantastic. They're, they're the kind of film you could see 10 times, and you laugh just as hard the 10th time as the first, even though you know the next line that's going to come. You know, and Leslie Nielsen was kind of an actor that was in played certain roles. He was always a detective or, or something like that, you know, in the fifties and sixties. And he was reborn with airplane oh, and, right. and the Naked gun series. That was like the pinnacle of his career. So anyway, uh, they had asked me in the one, one of the naked gun films, there's a scene uh, at angel stadium where they go to the booth and it's like, hi everybody. I'm Kurt Gowdy. Then they start panning the booth. Yeah. There's like a dozen people calling the game, including Dr. Joyce brothers. It's just ridiculous. Here's the <laughs> Here's Mel Allen. Here's Kurt Gowdy. You know, and they had asked me to be in the scene and I had a conflict. And like an idiot, I said I couldn't do it. So I tell them I owe you one. 
couple of years go by, basketball, they send the script to my agent. And my agent says, I don't think this is very good. I don't think you should do it. And then I was in my early 40s and he was an older guy. So yeah, he just doesn't get it. I'm going to do this is going to be great. It's the Zucker Brothers. I'm going to do it. Plus, I've never done anything with Al Michaels. This is before he came to NBC. We'll have a chance to work together. Okay, so we do it. And, you know, there's the one infamous line. There's a lot of lines in this, by the way. There's, and a oh, lot of them are, are, are really funny. Like <laughs> then the guy come in, I forget the, act, the actor's name, and he's supposed to be doing a promo, you know, and it's like he plays he plays Latino heartthrob scooter on whatever the hell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and then my line is all part of our who gives a rat's ass Tuesday. <laughs> he's going to jump in and like say whatever he's going to say. Oh, back to the action. He's like. All this ridiculous sophomoric stuff was funny as, but yeah. the, and, and Al Al has the one line you never get, get away with today, right? He's, oh. he's like falling asleep because it's like a marathon game. He's just falling asleep. It's like he's six hours. He's like face down like this, and I'm like I tap him on the shoulder. He wakes up. He goes, "Oh, daddy, don't touch me there." <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> even even in 1998, I'm I'm thinking, are we skating on thin ice here? Now now. <laughs> You'd be canceled. And the Zucker brothers, <laughs> I don't know about Stone and Parker. They're sort of in a vulnerable position. But anyway, so, but then there's this story, which never was told until the last year or so. And now Al has told it, and I've told it several times. So probably some people watching this know. Al and I are shooting. It's the last day of shooting. Like we never saw Ernest Borgnine or Yasmin Bleeth or, or, Kareem was in it, Reggie was in it, and a bunch of sportscasters were in it. Uh, Pat O'Brien and Dan Patrick and Tim McCarthy. We never saw any of them. Last day of shooting is me and Al. But they need they need this footage because it ties everything together. It runs throughout the whole movie. So it's important to them. So we break for lunch. We go in the trailer, and Al goes, boy, this sucks. <laughs> and I say, no, no, no. It's, kind of, it's really kind of funny. Plus, it's a pretty good payday. He goes, what? He says, what do you get? I said, what do you get? So I said, we decide to flip a coin and whoever, whoever loses has to go first, right? So I lose. And I tell him what I'm getting for this one day of shooting. It's five times what he's getting. Now <laughs> Al is apoplectic. Okay, so you know Al, the money doesn't mean anything to him that's at this stage of his life. He's done very well. It's the gamesmanship of it. Wait a minute, how can Costas get five times more than I'm getting? I said, well, Al, maybe my agent just did a better job than you. So he goes, he leaves the trailer, he finds the Zucker Brothers, and he goes, I get what Costas is getting, or I'm walking, right? And they say, too bad. You signed it, that's that. He says, okay, I'm walking. Now they realize, wait a second, we have no movie. This is the last day of shooting. We have up, up, Al, Al, please. Come on, come on back. Surely we can work this out, right? Oh, they worked it out all right. He got 10 grand on top of it, sort of as punitive damages for, for suffering, you know, <laughs> for, for emotional distress or whatever it was. Oh. So not only did he get what I got, he got a little more and then some. <sighs> Squeaky wheel, man. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. I, I, I know we, we've got to wrap things up pretty quickly, <laughs> but I, I want to, I'm really fascinated by this. You, you, I'm sure you're, you're a sports nut. You had to have played as a kid. Uh 
Uh-huh. When when did you realize the playing part was not going to be your thing long term? And when did you, your brain is just fascinating, Bob? When did you realize that your brain could articulate things in the way that it can? At what age did you realize that that was different than your classmates? Well, I was always pretty verbal. Um, so it depends. Okay. But, you know, doing it on the air is different. So reps. Michael Jordan, I was always pretty athletic. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> got cut from his high school team. So <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, uh, but even in college at Syracuse, one of the great things about it, they were so far ahead of the curve in the early 70s um, in terms of their emphasis, not just on print journalism, but on broadcasting and the undergraduates could go right to work on a campus television station, campus radio station. And I thought I had a pretty good sense of broadcast history. I thought when I listened to my first tapes that I had an impossible distance to go to be nearly as good as the people I admired and aspired wow. to be like. But the advisors at Syracuse must have seen that they had a, a broader uh, range of people to compare me to who at, at that same stage. And so they seemed to feel that I had a chance, some kernel of ability that could be developed. But it wasn't like I sat down and right away I was you know, good enough to be yeah. uh, seen by or heard by a lot of people. But I guess I did get better pretty quickly. And some of that has to do with what are the expectations? You wind up at KMOX, you're 22 years old, Jack Buck's over here, Dan Kelly, then the equivalent of Doc Emmerich, more recently, the greatest hockey announcer of his generation. He's over here. Uh, people of network quality, Gary Bender was there for a while, et cetera, et cetera. Joe Garagiola had been there. Harry Carey had been there. So it's kind of sink or swim. You got to get better in a hurry. Uh, but back to Rex's question, you know, I kind of play along when it comes to, um, you know, because I'm slight in stature and I've always been, I, I don't think it's true necessarily anymore, but I was always boyish looking. And if you're interviewing Shaquille O'Neal and you're going like this, <laughs> I get that. I totally get the joke. Um, and I was never, never good enough to think that I was, you know, one of the best athletes in school. But even now, if you and I went out and tossed a baseball around or shot free throws, Rex would beat me shooting free throws. But if you gave me time to warm up, I'd right. make more than half out of 10. In fact, once I shot 100 with someone rebounding for me. So you're in rhythm. You're not tired. Mm -hmm. You're in rhythm. And I made 91 out of 100 once. Wow. One time. On. Yeah. So, you know, I wouldn't if we tossed a football around, I can't throw yeah. it 50 yards, but I can throw you a 25 yard spiral. Right. Um, at least I could the last time I did it. I'm not doing <laughs> it. So this is this is how good or bad I was. I was the last guy cut from both my high school baseball team and my high school basketball team. And if it was just a game of 21, you know, I would have made the team because that's right. just shooting. And nobody's yeah. guarding me. My problem was I couldn't guard anybody and, and <laughs> guard me. <laughs> but if I was open, if I was open. I don't know about now, but if I was open, I could knock one down. So I was definitely not the kid that, you know, in, in Little League, you put in right field that he's picking four leaf clovers and not right. paying attention to the game. I was not that kid, but I was also more than self-aware enough to know that if I was ever going to get into Yankee Stadium without paying for a ticket, it would be to sit where Red Barbara and Mel Allen were, not <laughs> Mickey Mantle was standing out there in center field. So that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's funny. Um, yesterday, one of my best friends in the world, his son called me, he goes to Auburn University, Trey uh -huh. Adams, and he wants to be a sports broadcaster. 
and it's mm-hmm. changed so much. I mean, it, uh, there's barely any print anymore for this stuff. Yeah. You know, this newspaperman that turn into it and and there's he's starting a blog, but he asked me, what do I do? How do I? I'm like, I have no idea. I I've aged out of knowing how to do this kind of stuff. But here I have the Mount Rushmore guy right here. What do you tell Trey Atkins and these kids that want to come up and, and do do sports broadcasting now? I think some of the basics remain the same. I think you should get as well-rounded an education as you can and read, not just what you're required to read, read newspapers, read magazines, but here's a novel idea, read books, because it increases your appreciation of language. Not that you're going to steal someone's phrase, but you see the way words can be used. You see the way phrases can be put together. Uh, and, and it increases, it's, a lot of it just goes there by osmosis, and it increases your appreciation of, of language. Um, and you, you should absorb as much as you can of people whose work you think is good. And there's nothing wrong at the beginning with copying somebody because you have to have a place to start. At Syracuse in the early 70s and probably even up until very recently, everybody started out because a huge portion of, of us came from New York or other parts of the East Coast. We started out imitating Marv Albert. And all of a sudden, everyone was yes. talking, like, out of the backcourt, down the lane with a running one-hander. Yes, and it counts. But and, and you often say to yourself, why does Marv talk like that? Marv, Marv worked in New York. Nobody else who grew up where Marv, Marv talks like that. But Kenny Albert talks like that. His son talks like that. Right? And it yeah. works. This, by, by the way, Al Davis grew up in Brooklyn, okay? And, and he was at the Citadel for like two minutes. And for his entire life, he spoke in a Southern draw. <laughs> right? And who else that grew up in the Bronx, okay? You grew up in the Bronx. Hey, you talking to me, right? But Vin Scully talked, oh, hello, how are you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But you got, you got to start somewhere. So it's not there's nothing wrong with just basically imitating somebody while you're trying to get the basic nuts and bolts down. But then if you continue to just try to imitate someone, you'll only be a pale imitation. If they were great, the reason they're great is that in some sense they're distinctive and unique. There might be some overlaps, some similarities. But if you're truly really trying to copy someone, you're, you're going in the wrong direction. Good answer. Uh, what's your favorite movie, Bob? We're going to let you get out of here. What's your favorite movie? Wow. You know, again, you go back to kid stuff. So I'm going to eliminate all the great stuff I've seen as an mm-hmm. adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ones that stuck with me when I was a kid. King Kong did. Yeah. The 1933 version in black and white. No disrespect to any of the more modern iterations. That is a marvel of filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, sound wasn't even, hadn't even been around, but for a handful of years. So King Kong, 1933. King Kong. Yankee Doodle Dandy with Jimmy Cagney in the early 40s. Double Indemnity. I didn't know what film noir really meant uh, in, when I first saw it. Uh, there used to be a thing in New York called right. Million Dollar Movie. Um, and the Million Dollar Movie came on on Channel 9, which also carried the Mets games starting in 1962. But they the same movie every night, Monday through Friday, and then twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday. So in theory, you could see Yankee Doodle Dandy nine times in a week. Maybe I only saw it three or four. So King Kong, all these were on the Million Dollar Movie. King Kong, Yankee Doodle Dandy, Double Indemnity, and Casablanca. 
Now, on the double indemnity in Casablanca part, I don't know what it said about me when I was <laughs> years old, and I'm like, oh, you're going to regret it. Maybe not today, tomorrow, but soon for the rest of your life. You know, problems of two people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. You know, <laughs> oh, that was a little odd that way. Amazing. Yeah, well, you're you're partial to the yeah. See, we're gonna go over there. And we're gonna run right. the bank. Yeah, Richie <laughs> <laughs> Robinson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're one of the first I really got to see, and and last I know really of a such a great baseball purist. Mm-hmm. And I think of you that way. Mm-hmm. And I, I always just in my mind. My fantasy is somewhere at a, at a salty old oak bar and deep in New York City in the corner around a table. You and Billy Crystal just drinking a beer and just talking. I mean, you know, has that ever happened? Yes. Yes, it has. Wow. Um, and that, you know, I think I've, I'm lucky in that. Um, I'm old enough to have come out of, in effect, I'll use this shorthand, a black and white world into a technicolor world so that I'm old enough to say, honestly, I saw Bob Cousy, but I chronicled Michael Jordan's entire career and I haven't lost my senses yet. So I'm watching Steph Curry and LeBron James and all the rest. I saw Ted Williams and Stan Musial and Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays. Um, So I overlap that stuff. You know, I used to think when I did a talk show and I was very lucky that, you know, I interviewed Anthony Quinn and, and people like that who had long, distinguished careers that predated my birth. But I used to think about someone like Jack Parr or Dick Cavett, who predated me. And when Jack Parr was doing his show, Ernest Hemingway was alive. Robert Frost was alive. Winston Churchill was alive. Herbert Hoover, who'd been president in the late 20s and early 30s, was alive. These people were on his show. But then at the same time, he's saying, ladies and gentlemen, a bright young comic, Carol Burnett, you know? And and so... you know, fast forward. And again, without comparing myself in stature or quality, I, I landed so young and I've been lucky enough to be around for, you know, going on any, however long it is pretty soon it'll be 50 years. Um, so, so I, I guess I touched in some way, a pretty good span of sports history, a pretty good span of television history. You know, I say to my uh, friend and sometime broadcast partner, Jim Cott, who's going into the Baseball Hall of Fame this summer. Uh, I actually said this last week at Fenway Park. I think the game was like 13 to four and things were going slow. And, and you got to do this on baseball. You get the seventh grade <laughs> inning of the game like that. I said, you know, I can connect you to the entire history of baseball in four moves. I said, Connie Mack managed the Philadelphia A's from 1900 through 1949 or 50. Nellie Fox, who played into the early 60s, played for him in Philadelphia in the late 40s. Nellie Fox was the MVP of the American League in 1959 when you broke in as a rookie. So you faced Nellie Fox, who played for Connie Mack. You played 25 years, and uh, Julio Franco was a young player, and you faced Julio Franco. Julio Franco played to his late 40s. He faced a young Adam Wainwright. Adam Wainwright is still pitching. Four moves, Mack, Fox. Franco, Wainwright, 1900 to 2022, the entire modern history of baseball. I've connected you, Jim Cott, in four moves. Now, I don't have 
I don't reach quite that far, but it's the same idea. It's just luck and happenstance, you know, to kind of land in the middle of it that way. So and, what was your question? And talent and work. <laughs> what was the question? <laughs> you and Billy Crystal ever sat down oh, at a bar oh, and just talked yeah, baseball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when, when that's what prompted that ramble. Um, no, it was perfect. When I, when I arrived in New York, from St. Louis in the early 1980s. I still continue to live in St. Louis uh, for a very long time after that. But there was a bar called Runyon's in St. Louis, named for the famous sometimes sports writer, sometimes just observer of the passing parade, Damon Runyon. In fact, when people talk about someone who's Runyon-esque, it's yeah. that certain kind of, of character that, uh, that Josh was getting at the guy in a, in a snap rim hat with a cigar ringside, you know, or at, or at the opening of a big Broadway show or whatever, that, that kind of New York. And so you could walk into the run at any time to someone, Hey, meet you at runs. And you knew that midnight, one o'clock, there would be a bunch of guys there. The same guys, that of a group of about two, a half dozen Yankees or Mets to play, the umpires might, a couple of the umpires might be there, you know, after the game. Or Tim McCarver or Ron Darling might be sitting there. But so too might read the great New York Times sports columnist who was just at the end of his career when, when I was breaking in, be there. It was just the exact kind of situation that Josh is talking about. Yeah. And now specifically, to me and Billy Crystal, it brings me to a night at the bar at uh, the Regency Hotel where I was staying and so too was Mickey Mel. Um, Mickey had kind of a permanent suite at the Regency courtesy of George Steinbrenner to come in and do some sort of promotional stuff. So now here's me and Billy talking to Mickey Mantle. And it's like, you know, we're just like two kids. Remember this time? Remember that time? Remember that? And now we're the, it's like one o'clock in the morning, the place is practically empty. And Mickey goes, I wish I could do his Oklahoma draw. Shit. I did all this stuff and I don't remember half of it, but you little shits remember all of it. <laughs> but, you know, he also said after that, it was really touching. <laughs> Mickey was, Mickey was shy by nature and humble by nature. That's why he was such a great teammate. And the last guy on the bench loved him because he treated him just the same as he would treat Whitey Ford or Yogi Berra. Um, and then when you compounded it with his problems with alcohol, he sometimes had problems with all the idolatry and he couldn't walk down the street without people wanting to meet him and slapping him on the back. And it depended upon what his state of mind was. And he actually said subsequently, and again, this is like so many of the things that I mentioned earlier, it's less about merit than it is about luck and happenstance and where you found yourself, he actually told Billy afterwards, you know, that night in New York, I was able to put a face to all those people who have told me through the years, you meant so much to me when I was wow. a kid, or my, you were my dad's favorite player. And a lot of times I'd be annoyed by that, but because it was you two guys and I know you and I like you, it wasn't just another person, it was you two guys. And I sort of got it. He goes, that's when wow. I really got it. It wasn't that amazing that, I mean, it, wow. it wasn't anything that Billy did or I did. We were, we were like a proxy 
for a zillion other people. Conduit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but what a, bless, what a blessing that we were, even without realizing that that's what was happening. Oh, beautiful. No question, beautiful. no question. You, uh, you, you, game seven, World Series, any announcers, dead or alive, present company excluded, who would you want to call that game? I'd want Vin Scully to call it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I think Jack Buck in his prime in a different way would do a magnificent job. Um, I, I think Joe Buck for 20 plus years on Fox has risen to the occasion many times and put his voice on a number of signature moments. You know, in an age of social media, everybody yeah. takes a beating because people who are angry or resentful or have nothing better to do are infinitely more likely to weigh in than somebody who just sits there and says, you know, Josh, I'm watching Joe Buck or Al Michaels. They're really good. I like what they do. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. That doesn't get any clicks. You know, yeah. by the way, if, if this goes, if this goes online and if, and if, and if the, uh, the heading of it is Bob, Josh and Rex have interesting conversation <laughs> that would get much less clicks then Bob Costas goes rogue, reveals secrets of career. Or, <laughs> yeah. or, or here is why I hate Bob Costas. <laughs> Bob Costas, want to find out why you hate him, right? right. So, so, you know, no, nobody gets out on scathe. Even if the great Jim McKay or Vin Scully started over now, there'd be people on social media saying how much they sucked. That's right. And all that really proves is how much those people on social media suck. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. Bob, come back and do this another time with us, will you, please? I think we ought to give it a rest for at least a year because people are tired of me by now. But No way. But I enjoyed it. I really did. Thank you. Thanks for giving Thanks. me all this. Experience. Oh, come an on, honor. man. We got to do it. We got to do it again. And, it, and it's an honor. Old ABA guy. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> yep. Thank you, Rex. Thank you, Josh. Thanks, Bob. Thank Talk you to so you soon. Much. Bob Costas. Josh, mm. he what should thoughts? do. He should do that for a living. He should. He yeah, should. he's a pretty decent communicator, it seems. Yeah, I wish he was a more articulate thinker, though. Yeah. you know, just yeah. stumbles and fumbles a lot of and uh, and forgets Jeez. his. Oh my that gosh, voice though, right? It's it's like I can't. It's one of those so iconic. I can't believe it's the voice as much as as seeing him. I mean, that was I know that was crazy. I know. I know. Um, yeah, I'm still reeling a little bit. My mind's just racing. I wanted to I seriously could have had him on for another three hours. Yo, I mean, he, I feel like he'd have done it. He just, you know, yeah. like we say about uh, it's like kind of like when we just talked about Will Bond, that this is what they do. Yeah. And they love it. Yeah. And how about this little quick little here we are. He's done a, asked to do trillions of mm -hmm. these, spend his whole life talking about sports and doing this stuff. We're so lucky to get him. And he, he throws, he goes, and you're 54 and Josh is 50. It's like, he did work for yeah. this. He did research. Like he's yeah. a pros, pros, pro. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, you can tell, and I, we, we didn't, get into it. And I so wanted to ask him about this because, you know, calling basketball and calling baseball, two different things. And, and you can tell he's a preparation nut, right? You know, he, he knows everything. He's got a historical perspective. He's done his work. I wonder, you know, for him, what, 
is most gratifying? Do you like, you know, because in basketball, you may have a ton of stories. If mm -hmm. the game's good, you're not going to get in anything, mm -hmm. you know, nothing. You can normally get some things in in baseball. And I wonder if that's, I wonder if that's frustrating to not have some of your research that you've done, not be able to go into, you know, what you're, what yeah. you're putting out that night. But, I would imagine man. though, he's got such a store and he's such a pro. He knows he's going to get this chance again. Yeah. He knows he's already learned this day. He's going to, it's going to happen again. He calls so you know, I would imagine, yeah. but yeah, the difference between it, it's like a difference between playing baseball and basketball. Like I used to, I was, my best sport was baseball, but I didn't like it because it was slow and I got anxious and it was, you know, basketball, yeah. not my best sport, but I liked it the most because you couldn't think yeah. you just reacted and went. And I wonder if I suppose for his love of the game, he prefers baseball and all these anecdotes, but I wonder how he approaches preparation for both of those. Yeah. Same. And, you know, it, he said, you know, two or three times, uh, you know, obviously, uh, being humble, but, you know, just lucky to do this for 50 years. You have a lucky night. Mm -hmm. You don't luck your way into a 50 year career. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's because he's been, been here because he is still, you know, young, youthful, um, mm -hmm. youthful mind. Mm -hmm. He's still around because he's bankable. He's money in the bank. You, if you got Bob Costas on the mic, you are just fine. Yeah, yeah. Right? He, he's so humble. And he kept saying, I just found myself at the right place. But no, I mean, that's talent. Make your that luck. Make your luck, humble. man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Michael Jordan didn't just luck right. into, you know, going yeah. to Carolina. And do, I mean, it. that's talent and reps and preparation and God-gifted ability as well. You remember? You remember Sean Johnson, the gymnast. I interviewed her a couple months ago, and she said something that's stuck with me. I asked her about being young, and you know, she was an Olympian, won a gold medal, um, being young and and passionate. And she said, you know, to really be great at anything, you have to sacrifice a little bit of sanity. And meaning, you you've got to be almost unrealistic in your belief that you can do this right. one thing mm. and you've got to repeat that sanity over and over and over that insanity over and over again until you achieve it or don't achieve it right but it's and you know that he's put in the work i know the work that you put in and you know we talk about people all the time it, it, the consistency if you're good at it is everything right yep yep a great great podcast all right buddy that was episode 40 of the Rex Chapman Show with my super dope homeboy from the L-Town, Josh Hopkins. We'll see you next week back here, powered by basketballnews.com.